You are listening to episode 121 of the Tennis Files podcast with special guest Michael Russell. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. My name is Mirban Iranshad, a former Division I college tennis player. And on the show, I interview the world's top tennis professionals, coaches, and experts to help you improve your tennis game. And today, I have the honor of interviewing Michael Russell. He achieved a career high of number 60 in the world on the ATP tour. He was on tour for 17 years and he has an academy based in Houston, uh, which you can actually check out on his his website, uh, michaelrusselltennis.com for more information on that. And John McEnroe said this about Michael. He said that no one's going to try harder on a tennis court than Michael Russell. And uh, so Michael was definitely one of the grittiest players in the history of the sport. It was just really cool to to speak with him about his career and in particular, um, you know, his mental attitude and his physical training. And uh, it's definitely both very informational and inspirational. And uh, I know that you'll really enjoy uh, this episode. So let's jump straight in to the interview. So without further ado, here is my interview with Michael Russell. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Tennis Falls podcast. It's really a pleasure and an honor to have with us uh, Michael Russell, who is, uh, as many of you know, uh, was a former top 100 ATP tennis pro, and he's also a current coach in Houston. And uh, he's widely known by many to be one of the fittest players and mentally tough players to ever play the game. Uh, so, Michael, it's really uh, fantastic to have you on the show, and I really appreciate you uh, taking your time today to join me. Thank you. Uh, it's my pleasure. I uh, look forward to the interview and uh, sharing some of my knowledge. And, uh, you know, it's been an incredible career, not only playing, but being on the coaching side of it now as well. For sure, yeah. I mean, it's it's really fantastic to have somebody, I mean, with your top level of tennis uh, experience and knowledge now coming over to help uh, everyone get better. So I really do appreciate that you <laughs> made this transition. Uh, but firstly, uh, when we were corresponding earlier uh, this week, you mentioned that you're actually doing some coaching at the, uh, I think, the Oracle Challenger this week. So how has that been going for you? Yeah, so I'm coaching Tennis Sangren. Uh, we've been we started working together after Wimbledon this year, and I enjoy working with him. He was is coming back from an injury this fall, had a stress fracture, so he won his first round today, which was great. His, it was his first match in two months, and here in Houston, it's about 45 degrees and a little windy, so it's not obviously the easiest condition, especially when you're you know, playing that first match coming back after rehabbing everything. So uh, very good effort from Sangren to get through that first round. Yeah, for sure. And I did a little quick Google search and I said he's uh, the number one seed. But like you said, you know, coming back from injury, it's uh, a tall task. But, you know, best of luck to to both of you. Uh, I just want to go back down memory lane just for a second and ask you if you can try to remember, uh, what's your first memory of actually hitting a tennis ball? <laughs> You're really going far back. <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember hitting tennis balls actually on the garage mm. against the garage door when I was about five years old. And that was that was my first introduction to tennis. My parents taught me how to play. I have an older brother that played collegiately, uh, grew up in a tennis family. So it's, it's always been in my blood and, you know, I've always loved the sport, been very passionate about it and kind of shows when I'm on court and I'm playing. So, but yeah, it, Against the garage door at five. Wow. And then at what point did you actually start getting formal lessons and things like that? 
I was fortunate that my father was in the tennis business. So he went from Mm -hmm. um, managing a tennis club to owning a tennis club. And he played collegially at the University of Michigan. So he taught me how to play. And so he spent a lot of hours, you know, every day teaching me technique and getting on the court and just helping me progress each day. So very fortunate to have, you know, him be able to do that. And then he was smart enough that, you know, as I started to progress, he wasn't afraid to get other ideas and, and get some help from other you know, local pros who are good players and even reach out to some more experienced uh, professional coaches just for some more input and, and analysts of my game. That's fantastic, Michael. And so I understand in uh, listening to a couple of your other interviews that you were actually a multi-sport athlete until maybe about uh, 14. So uh, what benefit do you think uh, playing several sports gave you? Yeah, I mean, I'm, a, I'm a big advocate of playing other sports besides tennis. I know a lot of juniors nowadays that, you know, they just try to specialize in tennis and play so many hours on the court, which, you know, there's a, something to be said about that for honing your skill set, but becoming a better athlete, all around athlete is so important and being exposed to other sports. I think it also takes a little bit of pressure off, you know, the player on the tennis court because you have that one-on-one aspect you know, it's very demanding mentally. So, you know, by having that social aspect of playing some team sports or even other sports, not only physiologically does it get you more all around stronger, more agile, but I think it helps in the mental capacity as well to be a little more of a complete, I don't want to say human being, but, you know, a, a complete player on the court because you're exposed to other sports. For sure. Yeah, I can think of several players that I know that have become great and they, they were serious in other sports. Like uh, one of my friends, Tread Huey, played baseball pretty seriously and he's got a real live arm for a serve. Um, but uh, I was curious, uh, Michael, what sports did you actually play and then other than tennis? And then w- was there any competition between like tennis and another sport where you were trying to decide to go to become serious in one or the other? Or was tennis clear and far away like the, the number one? No, definitely. I I played soccer and baseball. I always wanted to play football, but my parents were afraid of, of getting tackled and getting hit too many times. Um, danger. But I loved. I wanted to be a running back um, in football. But I think you know playing soccer and baseball. You know, baseball obviously the throwing part of it helps the serving aspect, and then soccer. You know, you're doing so much running, and there's so much coordination, um, hand and foot. I mean, eye and foot coordination that, uh, you know, I think it translates well over to the tennis court. I played high school soccer. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, our team was really good. We were state champions. And Mm -hmm. at the time, I was probably, I was playing defense, and I was the second string. So I think it it was a good decision that I could just focus on the tennis. Um, Even though as fast as I was in the soccer field, I was better at tennis. And I also like that one-on-one aspect of just like gladiator one-on-one tennis. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, uh, you know, one-on-one, you can't really rely on anybody. Uh, so that's that's definitely very enjoyable. And, and so, um, you know, when you transitioned to concentrate exclusively on tennis, I mean, what what did you change in your, your daily uh, routines and training? Well, I had multiple sports. I probably played tennis three times a week. And then, or four times a week, but then when I transitioned over to tennis completely, then I started playing five, six times a week. But growing up in Michigan, indoors, you know, I didn't have access to a lot of court time. So I tried to maximize my time on court every time I stepped foot. So if I was lucky to get two hours a day, you know, indoors, then, you know, obviously I would take it. And that was ideal, you know, to be able to get two hours and then making sure it was the highest of quality. For sure, Michael. And so uh, I understand that, you know, there's a certain point where you actually made a, a big time commitment to fitness. And can you talk about, you know, what sparked that uh, that commitment and uh, and then like what you actually change in maybe your diet and your training? Yeah. So I was playing Kalamazoo, which is the boys 16s and 18s nationals. And I was in 16s, and 
I was playing Mike Bryan, who's one of my one of my best friends on tour, and we had a really long match, and I was just exhausted. And I it wasn't even I just felt like a big reason for me losing the match, not to take credit away from him beating me, but was the fitness aspect and knowing that my fitness let me down. I was so disappointed in myself that I didn't want to have another match be have a result because I wasn't fit enough. So literally after losing that match, the next day I made the commitment and created goals to get much fitter and not ever lose a match again because of fitness. Got you, Michael. You know, the thing with that is sometimes, I think a lot of times people will have something like that happen to them and then they'll make the commitment and make the goal. But then when they feel some pain or things get tough with the training, then they'll relapse and then, you know, go go through the, you know, the failures again. So I was wondering, you know, how does that actually translate? Like, what are you thinking, you know, when you're in that training session, maybe, you know, maybe the third one of the week or whatever, and then you're actually feeling it, you know, what are you telling yourself to keep going? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I'm a little bit obsessive compulsive to begin with. So in certain things, that's, that's a positive and obviously it can be a negative, but as far as in the fitness category, it's a positive. So every time I felt there was a challenge, you know, I continue to remind myself why I was doing it. You know, why am I getting fitter? Why am I going through this suffering or this you know, pain, not pain in the sense where I'm getting injured, but, you know, that physical pain when you're working out and it's tough because I don't want to have that sensation of being disappointed because there was something that I had 100% complete control over and I wasn't prepared and I failed at that. So I was I was okay with failing if I was going to lose a match, but I was not okay losing a match because of fitness. Right, right. Love that. Uh, appreciate that advice. And um, uh, so, one thing that I found, you know, in doing research, uh, is that you're uh, you're a pretty smart guy. So I was wondering, um, you know, you, you were ranked number one in the country uh, in the 16s and 18s, yet you were also the valedictorian of your class. So I was curious how you were able to actually manage balancing school, you know, in your studies with uh, with high level tennis. Yeah, I mean, I was fortunate that my parents were. They instilled in me early that school was always the most important because, you know, you can always get injured and if you aspire to be a professional tennis player and it doesn't work out, you need to have a degree. You need to have, you know, really focus on your studies to make an impact in the world. So I always, you know, took that to heart. And I'm, I'm a person that likes to challenge themselves. It kind of goes back to the fitness and being disappointed. You know, I didn't want to go to the classroom and feel like I didn't study, I didn't prepare for something and give it 50%. I wanted to give it 100%. So by doing that, I'm always trying to learn. And I did that even at a young age. I like reading a lot and trying to learn new things, you know, new areas that I was passionate about. So, you know, time management is a big part of it. So I didn't really spend kind of the pre-social media era. So I didn't, you know, I didn't have no social media back then. And I didn't spend a lot of time watching TV. And if I did, it was only on the weekends or, you know, Nintendo and Sega. You know, if I played video games, it was only a couple hours and only on, like, Saturday or Sunday. So I was always trying to make it, whether it's in school, whether it's on a tennis court, whether, you know, hanging out with friends um, and family. Just, you know, I didn't want to have that label of being kind of lazy and not doing anything with my life. Gotcha, Michael. And so you mentioned that you learned a lot of these values uh, from your parents. I mean, what did they actually do to instill them in you? Did they like just tell you or did they provide examples or, cause I'm just curious about how they're able to, you know, actually successfully ingrain, you know, such great habits uh, and values into you. Yeah. A lot of it was just uh, table discussions. Uh, we always sat down at dinner, all four of us, which was nice. So we could, you know, talk mm-hmm. about things, what happened in the world and what happened at school that day. Uh, my mother was a teacher and we actually, my brother and I, went to the same school that my mother taught at, which was great. So that made it uh, pretty easy just to facilitate talks. And also anytime we needed a little bit of help with schoolwork, you know, my father would help, my mother would help. And then um, my brother was an excellent student as well. So that was a nice example. Since he's three years older, I could always see how well he was doing in school. And 
I kind of, you know, I didn't want to be also that, that other, you know, the second child that doesn't do well in school. Meanwhile, my older brother is doing really well. So I didn't want to be labeled that. Nice. I love the competitiveness there. And it was very helpful to have a successful brother as well. Yeah. Uh, just curious, you know, sometimes high school tennis can, uh, especially for a great player like you, not be really fun or anything. I was curious, did you actually play uh, high school tennis? I did. And actually, as a freshman, I played number two behind my brother. He oh, played, wow. Yeah, he played wow. one. Okay. So we were actually in a nice. in a smaller division. We were the private school. So we were in Michigan, it was uh, considered Class C. Class A was the biggest. So my high school matches, yeah, I mean, I, it wasn't very competitive, but it was fun. You know, I looked at it as a kind of social uh, escapade as I, you know, we traveled to tournaments and it was fun being with the team. You know, my brother was there. And then when I wasn't playing the high school matches, then my training was pretty intense. It was almost like a little break from my everyday, you know, full-on training. Nice, nice. And I, I don't know, for some reason I felt a lot of times like when I played, uh, you know, nowhere near your level, but when I played high school tennis, I felt like sometimes it would kind of bring my level down, but I don't know if that was just an issue with, with my intensity. So how were you able to make sure that your level didn't get affected too much, you know, when yeah. you actually played much lower competition? No, it can definitely bring you down. I mean, you can even relate that to professional tennis. You know, a lot of times, you know, you can play to the level of the opponent and you can't do that. You know, you really have to, you know, have the self-talks and get motivated, get the feet going and make sure that you continue to go, you know, whether your game style is more aggressive or you're more of a defender, you you can't sink to the level of your opponent. So when I was playing high school tennis, if I saw the opponent was really weak, I would, you know, I would work on my servant volley you know, work on certain aspects of my game that I might not usually do if I'm playing a stronger opponent. Very nice. Very nice. Great advice there. Appreciate that. And so uh, you, you played uh, one year of tennis at, I, I believe it was Miami. And I was wondering how you ended up choosing uh, University of Miami and how that experience was for you. So it worked out really well. I worked with Rodney Harmon when I was a junior. I was number one in the mm-hmm. 18s. And we traveled internationally to play a lot of the Grand Slam junior events. And Rodney was the USTA coach and uh, director of men's tennis at the time. So I had a really good experience working with Rodney. And my senior year in high school, Rodney ended up taking over the position at University of Miami, Florida. So for me, it was seamless because Rodney knew that I wanted to be a professional tennis player. I would probably only be there one or two years. And... You know, Rodney was a great individual coach. Um, we already worked together a bunch, and I knew it, he, you know, he would do a great job of helping to continue to develop my game and, and get me ready for the pros. So I went to Miami. I played number one. I played, I want to say, 75 matches in one year, which is incredible. You know, it's a lot, and it was a fantastic year. You know, I, at the time, I don't know if it still holds, but I had the record of most single-season wins. I won the Rolex National Indoors as a freshman, and I was NCAA Freshman of the Year. So it was, I had a great time in college, um, was successful. You know, I played a lot of great matches, good competition. And, you know, I felt, I felt like after that year, you know, I also played as an amateur in the summer and was successful that I was, you know, ready to, to go out and, and play on the pro tour and, and see how I did. Yeah, awesome stuff. And then, so between the year where you entered Miami uh, and then, uh, you know, a year later, I guess, or so, uh, when you left, uh, what what did you improve the most in your game? Well, it was actually a little tricky, too, because right before I was about to turn pro, I actually broke my arm, which is a pretty funny mm-hmm. story. A lot of people don't know about it, but I was actually training with Andre Agassi in North Carolina. And this was when Andre dipped in the rankings down to like 120, and he was looking to make a comeback. So, I actually went up there for a week to train with him and I ended up shattering my arm spinal fracture while I hit a serve. It was pretty wild. Yeah. Um, wow. But, yeah. So that, wow. That, I mean, how, no, how exactly did that happen? Oh, sorry to interrupt you, uh, Michael, but how did that exact, how did that happen? You know, so how did you shatter it hitting a serve? I had a stress fracture, but I didn't know it. So I had a lot of the signs of tendonitis and, Oh. You know, uh, we didn't get any imaging, which I probably should have knowing what I know now. So mm-hmm. I just kept treating it like it was tendonitis. And eventually, 
there was so much stress on that area. When I hit, I hit a kickstart as hard as I could, the stress literally cracked at that stress fracture spot, and I had a spinal fracture of the hemorrhoid. Wow. Wow. And uh, I know... Yeah. I know, Michael, you've had, uh, you know, decent amount of uh, injuries. I mean, particularly your knees as well. Uh, just curious, like, wh- which one of the injuries was the hardest to recover from? Probably my knee injuries because it took nine months just to figure out what was going on. And so during that time, mm. not only did my ranking drop, but just having that unknown, you know, you don't know whether to train hard, whether you can come back from tournaments. And so there's no, there's no protocol. And that was the most frustrating, you know, not having answers, not having information or knowledge. So, you know, finally after nine months, we figured out what it was. Then I had surgery. Then it was another six months recovery. So I had to, you know, take protected rankings and then come back. And then, you know, fortunately I was able to rehab 100% and then get my ranking back in the top 100 yeah, it's it's not easy. I mean, your dad said that you reminded him of uh, Don Quixote and, <laughs> and that you suffered a lot, but, you know, you, you persevered. So, uh, I mean, it might be a bit of a similar question in the mental uh, toughness realm, but, I mean, what did you tell yourself? You know, a lot of times when we get injuries over and over, you know, there's a huge temptation to just uh, hang it up. So, I mean, what did you uh, kind of tell yourself that helped you to, to overcome all these injuries and get back? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I use the time to enhance my, you know, personal skill set. So I actually took some classes online, which was great. Um, so it allowed me to take more credits. Mm. And then eventually I went on and finished my degree online. But that was a big part of it. I, I went ahead and, you know, at the time I had a, a money manager and I went ahead and learned everything about everything there is to know about as much as you can in stock markets and investing and and so I went ahead and, and took over my own investing. So it's right. just, you know, trying to take a little more accountability into my own life, not rely so much on other people, but still, you know, still look to others for knowledge and answers. But I just wanted to have a little more input. And, you know, I'll even parlay it to, you know, who I'm coaching now. I'm, I'm coaching Tennis Sanger and Mackenzie McDonald. You know, Mackenzie got injured at the French Open, had a severe hamstring injury. And he's, you know, planning mm-hmm. on coming back going to see maybe January or February. Mm-hmm. But during this time off, he's done a great job of taking some classes from UCLA, you know, and, and furthering his degree uh, and, and spending that time for personal development. So it's it's just important that you, you stay positive, you know, whether it's a, a tennis injury or whatever type of injury, you know, in your life is, is look for opportunities to continue to grow, you know, as a human being. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, amazing advice again, uh, Michael. And and you uh, you went to um, or you took classes online uh, after which injury was it that you took uh, classes after? Was it the knees? The knees, yes. Okay, got it, got it. Fantastic. Uh, and um, as far as um, you, you know, your first ATP point, and I understand that when you were playing, they had uh, satellites. So it was like a little bit of a different structure, but. You know, it's, I'm sure it's always uh, for everybody. It's it's so memorable to get that first ATP point. So I was curious if you could kind of again <laughs> go down memory lane and kind of describe, uh, you know, how that happened and how you felt. Yeah. So my first ATP points, I was 16 years old actually. Um, so I was still in high school, wow. and it was back when they had satellites. You know, now today it's futures, but so I went to Northern California, and it was four weeks of tennis. Uh, there were some great players there. Um, at the time, I think Tommy Haas was playing in it, uh, Thomas Johansson, Tim Henman. So there's like a bunch of, you know, top, who went on to be top 10 players. But, you know, for me at 16 to see all these, you know, great players playing the tournament was, was pretty special. But to get that first ATP point, you know, was pretty satisfying because, you know, growing up, you, you watch the players on TV you see all the points, you see how successful they are. And, you know, you kind of dream of getting that ATP point because now you're professional, you're on the rankings, you know, nobody can take that away from you. So now you, Hey, I'm a professional tennis player. So that was nice. That was uh, a pretty special moment. And then, you know, from then on, obviously I had bigger aspirations. I wanted to get a lot more than one ATP point. 
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. For sure, and you got a, a ton of them. And uh, you know, as far as um, your height, obviously you weren't the tallest guy on tour. And I was wondering, I mean, did it ever come up, you know, from others? Uh, I mean, you can call them haters or whatever, but did it ever come up that uh, people were kind of um, trying to limit you in terms of uh, what you could achieve because of your height? And if so, did that kind of help fuel you at all? Or did you just not really even pay attention? I didn't pay attention. There were some coaches when I was younger that liked to label some players i mean it's you know people do that in general you know they try to make judgments or try to you know label someone oh this guy is going to be you know a top 10 player because he's 6-3 and you know does these things even though maybe the player's you know 14 years old and who knows what's going to happen so yeah I, I definitely used that as motivation a lot of times when you know someone thought that i wouldn't be successful because of my height and i would be limited so but then i always you know i looked at some of my idols growing up which you know michael chang you know, even Andre uh, Agassi, you know, at 5'11", wasn't a huge guy, but, you know, their speed, ability to take time away from opponents. And obviously, you know, you can measure heart and determination and perseverance and work ethic. So, you know, I always wanted to do that and, you know, give 100% because, you know, you can't measure that. And, you know, as long as I'm doing that, then, you know, I don't want to say the sky's the limit because obviously, you know, at a certain point, you know, there's you do have to have a certain talent to get it to a certain level, but, you know, I, I was always willing to go, you know, that extra mile to prove people wrong if I could. I love that. And, uh, you know, as, I mean, I guess we'd describe you as really a true grinder and a very gritty player. I mean, I was curious which playing style or styles were your favorites to play against. And then uh, I'd obviously ask you which ones were the toughest for you to play against. Yeah. Um, I loved playing against the big servers. You know, I, I liked my return game was probably my strength. My best shot was my return to serve and then my speed. So I really liked the challenge of trying to neutralize, you know, the 135 mile an hour serve and then really cut down on unforced errors and use their pace to redirect and make him move, make them feel uncomfortable. So, you know, I had a, I had a good record against a lot of the big servers and I just, I love the challenge, you know, of facing some of those guys. And then as far as, you know, a little more challenging for me and my game style would be, you know, playing players that were similar to my game style where, you know, they can obviously run all day, but then, you know, still have a firepower and maybe even a little more firepower than I do. You know, then it was a little more difficult, you know, to hurt them. So I would have to come up with something special, really look to use a lot of variety and come out of my comfort zone, you know, to, to mix it up and try to find ways, you know, to win win the match and, and make them think more than they would have to. For sure, yeah. I mean, I, I just someone that came to mind, I wish you were still on tour so you could have played uh, Diego Schwartzman. That would have been a, a fun one. But, uh, but yeah, as far as... Um, yeah, we have to. What's that? Sorry, Michael. I was going to say, I said, yeah, Diego and I would have some great points. <laughs> yeah, you sh- That's for you sure. sure. Uh, heck, yeah, you would have. Um <laughs> As far as um, rivals, I was wondering, uh, I mean, you're, you know, by all accounts, you're a great guy. And I was just curious, though, did you have any uh, rivals uh, on the tour that, I mean, whether it's uh, negative or positive that you were uh, really, like, looking out for or trying to beat in particular? Well, I mean, I had some great matches with Fognini. Uh, we played a bunch of times. We had a couple five-set matches, mm. and it's always diff- difficult with Fabio because, you know, he's so demonstrative and emotional on core. And you know, sometimes he tries to draw you away from your concentration and focus. Um, but then he's an incredible shot maker as well. So it's, you know, it's, it's tough to stay focused, but we had some incredible battles. Um, had some great matches with Monfils and those are always fun because he's so entertaining. So we'd have these incredible points and, you know, we, I think we played the U S open one year in four hours and 10 minutes. So, you know, those are always, you know, fun matches to look forward to. Obviously, from a physical standpoint, I knew, you know, I was going to be in for a battle, but, uh, but definitely, 
you know, fun to be a part of and, and challenging. Yeah, I mean, you've had some incredible matches, and I remember, you know, years ago, just being really excited at seeing uh, an American who was just so gritty and, uh, you know, exciting and, and trying his best on the court all the time. Uh, I was wondering, too, Michael, uh, if you could maybe take us through a typical day uh, where you weren't actually in a tournament, so maybe like a training day, how that like uh, roughly went and was structured for you. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, it changed throughout the course of my career because, you know, I played 17 years, which is a really long time. So, <laughs> you know, earlier on in my career, yeah. I spent more time on court. And then as my career progressed, I started to spend more time off court in the gym, recovering, you know, stretching, massaging, icing, all different types of mobility and modality works. I would say, you know, from from 20 to, mm-hmm. let's say, 27, 28, a typical day would probably be, you know, three hours on the tennis court, you know, broken up in two sessions, and then an hour in the gym. And then, mm-hmm. you know, the second half of my career, I would say two hours on the tennis court, one session, an hour and a half in the gym, and then another extra half an hour or 45 minutes of just recovery work on top of that. So both days were probably four to five hours, um, but just broken up differently. And then combine that with the fact that, you know, nutrition and sleep, everything is geared towards, you know, making sure that you're optimally recovering for the next day so you can continue to train hard again. Fantastic, Michael. So if you don't mind, I'm going to try to break it down a little, or actually ask you to break it down. But um, as far as the uh, practice sessions, did you divide like the first half and the second half into something like drills and practice matches or how is that uh, usually broken down? Yes. You know, obviously it had to be situational depending, you know, who's there because I would usually set up my own practices. It wasn't, I wasn't part of an academy or, or mm. you know, at the federation where there's a bunch of guys training. So, you know, at home I would set up my own practices. So usually the first session would be drilling and that's, you know, working on, you know, whatever I'm working on that day and, and that week and continue to try to, you know, get better. And the second half would be match play or point play. Gotcha. Great. And then as far as fitness, um, curious, uh, cause I, I do know that, um, you know, you're obviously a really fit guy and, and you do look muscular, but it was interesting to hear you say that you didn't necessarily, uh, you know, train with super heavy weights. I was wondering how you generally broke down uh, your fitness regimen and what you did. Yeah, so I, important. So the first half of career, I would probably spend more time. I didn't know as much about non-impact exercise or the importance of those. So I would, you know, I would jump rope mm-hmm. on a hard surface. I would go for the run on the street. I would do quite a bit of sprints on court. You know, so a lot of things that are breaking down the body. And then the second half, a little wiser, had more knowledge. I spent a lot more time doing non-impact exercises, whether that's, you know, bike sprints. Um, I would run the treadmill a little more. I still do court sprints because I like those a lot. But if I was going to do sprints, I would go to a field um, or a track, which was a lot, you know, softer on the knees. Um, In the gym, yes, I did not lift heavy because... You know, I felt, you know, if I'm lifting heavy, I'm slowing down, I'm creating slow twitch muscle fibers. So I was all about being explosive, you know, and I still do that today a lot. It's all about being, uh, you know, creating that explosivity, working on uh, eccentric moves, um, which is, you know, the antagonist muscles of what we do on the, on the tennis court. So doing more uh, like back exercises and then a lot of, you know, hit training, which is, you know, high intensity interval training. So it's a little more tennis specific. So you're you know, you're taxing the cardiovascular, but anaerobically and aerobically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I, I appreciate that. That's that's great information there. As far as the footwork training, I was wondering if you could maybe just mention like uh, maybe a couple drills that you did that you in particular really enjoyed, and also you feel uh, helped your your agility. Well, yeah. I mean, there's there's so many footwork drills and and training modalities that can help you. But yeah, I mean, just simple ones, name a few. I mean, you just get, get, get cones and you can do a slalom drill with cones, you know, take 10 cones, space them apart, two feet, three feet and slalom in between cones up and down the tennis court as fast as you can. You know, it's a simple drill, but that's, you know, great footwork. Another modality that I love are the crazy balls. 
you know, which is a small ball that has bumps on them. They bounce any, any direction. And that's, that's mm. a great tool to work on agility and balance because you don't know where the ball is mm-hmm. going to bounce. And you can play mini tennis with those with another player, or you can, you know, use it by yourself where, you know, you close your eyes and throw it up and then you got to react to it. Um, but that's all, you know, very tennis specific translates well to, you know, seeing the ball and then having to react with your feet, you know, explosively. I appreciate uh, that information there about the uh, different drills. And uh, also you mentioned that you put much more focus on recovery uh, in the latter half, uh, you know, latter parts of your career. So I was wondering what that consisted of for you. Yeah. So I always stretched really well, even in juniors, you know, after matches, but I started spending more time with mobility work, um, making sure my warm-ups were mm-hmm. dynamic warm-ups, and then, you know, using more time rolling, mm-hmm. you know, soft tissue work, and then even um, different types of alternative methods, you know, to getting better, whether that's acupuncture nowadays, Graston, Rolfing, um, ART, you know, there's so many different shockwave therapy. You know, I'm I'm into whatever can help bring, you know, more blood flow and flush lactic acid out to get the body to respond better, you know, and to, you know, get you 100% the next day, then I will try it and, you know, see how my body responds. If it's, if it's positive and beneficial, then, you know, I'll add it to my routine. And then if, if not, if, you know, I wake up and I'm not feeling great or something wrong with it, then you know, I will just move on to the next. Good stuff, Michael. And out of all of those, uh, I mean, which method would you suggest for uh, amateur players? And, and I, I forgot if you mentioned foam rolling too, but which, which one of those recovery methods would you think is, is really effective for uh, amateurs? I mean, rolling is, if, if you had one piece of equipment, I would say go out and buy a foam roller. That is the number one best piece of recovery, best recovery tool you can purchase inexpensive you know you can start light with a white foam roller or you can uh you know if you're already used to soft tissue work you can buy ones a little bit harder but that's it's a great tool awesome yeah i mean i I personally uh once i've started foam rolling i've really been a lot more limber and uh really gotten those uh those tough knots out and it makes a huge difference uh in how i'm moving um so as far as the uh your mental training i was wondering you know did you do any mental training as well like did you ever work with uh with i guess mental experts or anything like that or did you do any sorts of maybe yoga or meditation or anything because uh, you know you're such a a strong mental competitor so i was wondering if you could give us any insights into any of the, the mental training you might have been doing um yeah so i read a lot of books also which helped um some hmm. sports psychology books so finding different keywords that trigger in times of stress you know, they can help you out, help create a sense of calm, whether that's a color, you know, whether it's an image, whether it's um, using visualization techniques, and then also, you know, finding finding the rituals, you know, that gives you confidence. Not only, you know, did I do it, but, you, you know, you can see even a guy like Nadal, uh, Djokovic, you know, they have certain superstitions and rituals that they do in times of stress, and that gives them confidence because, you know, they know when they go go through that routine, you know, it's a sense of uh, comfortability. For sure. For sure, Michael. I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, talking about coaching, I mean, you uh, you obviously retired uh, a few years back, I believe in uh, 2015 after the U.S. Open. And then uh, I was wondering, you know, what motivated you and how did you decide to open up your private coaching business uh, in Houston and also, uh, you know, the, the website, of course, at uh, michaelrusselltennis.com? Yeah, so in 2015, I still was playing, but I played a very limited schedule. I think I only played maybe six or seven events and then retired at the U.S. Open. And during that year, I already started coaching a little bit in Houston, had some private clients and just to try it out to see if I enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed it. You know, I I loved the aspect of helping other people and, and seeing the development and then most important, seeing that they were engaged to what I had to offer. You know, they really respected my knowledge and wanted my experience and they were willing to learn. And, you know, I love that. And 
you know, I can, I took that and then continued to grow and continue to learn, you know, as a coach, because it's much different, you know, just by being a good tennis player doesn't mean you're a good coach. You know, there's a lot to go into being a good coach, you know, and learning and analyzing and seeing the game. So, you know, I wanted to continue to grow and continue to learn. And, you know, I just business grew and got more clients and I love it. And today it's a great mix. So, you know, I work with the USTA and I coach tennis Sangren and Mackenzie McDonald. And then when I'm not coaching them, I'm in Houston with private clients, um, mostly juniors, high performance, but I also have some adults as well. So it's a, it's a really great mix. I'm very fortunate and very, very honored to be able to do both. Yeah, for sure. And we're very lucky to have you doing this uh, for, for the community. Uh, I was wondering, you, you mentioned, obviously, and, and so true that, uh, you know, not just because, you you know, if you're a good tennis player, it doesn't mean you're a, a good coach automatically. So I was wondering, uh, was there one particular area or, or a couple that you found out that you needed to uh, learn more about or improve uh, as far as your coaching skills? Well, the biggest thing with coaching is communication. Mm-hmm. And then also the selflessness of it. So, and that's the biggest difference. So, you know, when you're a tennis player, when you're a pro tennis player, you know, it's all about you. So, I mean, we're so selfish and I'm guilty of it. So any, any pro tennis player that says they're not selfish is lying. So cause you, so you kind of have to be, you know, it's the nature of the sport being an individual sport. So, you know, when you're a coach, it's all about the player. So making sure, you know, they have everything, they're in the right state of mind, their stress levels are low, they're prepared, they have the right information, and then being able to communicate that to them so that they understand and feel confident going on court. Yeah, for sure, Michael, for sure. Um, And and, uh, one other question, uh, actually about um, discipline, and you know, I know that you have limited time, Michael, so let me know if you have to run, but um, did you ever have moments where you you actually, you wanted to take the easy route, you know, when you were training or, or, or whatnot. And, and if so, you know, how are you able to stay disciplined and, and make the right choice, you know, every single time? Because I, that's, a, that's something that a lot of people struggle with, you know, whether they, you know, they have like a, a fitness training scheduled and then they don't end up not going to it because they they rather stay home and things like that. I was just wondering if you could kind of give some advice to people out there so that they can uh, consistently make the right choices and build uh, good habits. Yeah. And, you know, obviously I've, I've never made all the right choices. I don't think anybody ever has. Um, and that's part of the, yeah. you know, learning process as, as a human being. We learn from some of our, you know, mistakes or poor choices that helps us grow as people. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, you know, I always had the philosophy, if I'm not doing it, somebody else is. So when it translates to tennis, you know, if I'm not putting in that fitness work, if I'm not stretching, if I'm not eating correctly, you know, my opponent is, and they're going to have that edge on me. And, you know, I, I apply that to, you know, basically everything that I do. So, you know, whether it's working around the house or, you know, something that in business, you know, I want to make sure that I'm prepared and have the most knowledge with investments. I don't want to just rush into something. So, you know, it's taking the extra time, you know, to finding out that information. And, you know, it was a, it was a good book I read. Basically, how how much are you willing to sacrifice or suffer to be successful? So, you know, the, the CEO, you know, to become CEO, he's willing to sacrifice his time by spending, you know, 12 hours a day in the office, but that makes him a successful CEO. So, you know, for me to be a successful tennis player, am I willing to sacrifice, you know, those five hours in the tennis quarter, you know, my nutrition or my fitness. So it's just, you know, it's setting priorities. What are we willing to sacrifice and are, are we willing to accept that we might not be successful if we're not able to sacrifice certain things. Love that, Michael. That's it's fantastic stuff. And I mean, you mentioned that you uh, read that in a book. Uh, do you have a, a book or two that you can kind of recommend to tennis players, either tennis related or not, uh, that would really help them improve? Um, I mean, there's some some great books out there. I mean, I read a lot of nonfiction, so I a lot of autobiographies, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of inspirational. I you know, some of these are older books um, as far as like, you know, Michael Jordan's autobiography. 
I love Lance Armstrong's. Obviously, it's a little bit controversial, but you know, just his determination when coming back, you know, from having cancer and working so hard, that was very inspirational to me. And then, um, you know, I've, I've read a book now, but uh, the title has a <laughs> swear word in it. So it's ex- expletive, yeah. But it's, uh, sure. you know, it's it's the <laughs> art of not giving a F, you know, F. And, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's a good book. You know, it's, it's a good read. It just kind of puts some stuff in perspective of, you know, you know, putting priorities and what are we willing to suffer for and sacrifice. So, um, you know, those are some of my, some of my few books that I enjoy. Um, I read a couple of Tony Robbins's book, which, um, are good, you know, good inspirational. It's an older one, unlimited power, but you know, it has a lot to do with, um, you know, being able to control your mind because that is the most powerful, you know, tool that we have, you know, it's amazing what we can create you know, in habits and what we can break from bad habits if we really put our mind and energy to it. Awesome. I appreciate that. Uh, those, those are suggestions, Michael. Yeah, one that I have been reading lately and have just been infatuated with is uh, a book by David Goggins called Can't Hurt Me, where uh, he just had a really r- rough childhood, was abused and so forth, and was 300 pounds at one point, uh, spring for cockroaches, and then he just decided that he wanted to become a Navy SEAL, and uh, it was all about him just doing things that were very difficult because, you know, you can't really grow un- unless there's friction. And so uh, that's a fantastic book that I uh, recommend, but I appreciate those. Where, uh, Michael, can we uh, follow you uh, online and, and on social media? Definitely. So I'm on Instagram, Michael Russell Tennis. Mm-hmm. And then also on Twitter, it's the same. So you can follow me at Michael Russell Tennis. And then my website is the exact same, michaelrusseltennis.com. Um, it's more of a informational website, just kind of tells, you know, what my private lessons are in Houston and, you know, a little bit about my biography and background. But um, try to keep up to date. You know, I'm on Facebook as well. And uh, you'll see some of my travels. My wife posts a lot more than I do. She travels with me. <laughs> so if you really want awesome. to see my travels, you can follow her. That's... <laughs> that's uh, one two three one two three Lily Russell, and she posts a lot of stuff, you know, on the tennis court and off the tennis court. So you guys can get a good look at uh, what's going on in some of the cities that we uh, that we visit and the cultures, which is pretty neat. Awesome, and we'll definitely have uh, all the links we mentioned on the uh, show today on the show notes page. Uh, two real quick ones that I want to sneak in, unless you have to uh, leave now, Michael. Is uh, yeah, I uh, appreciate ahead. it. Thanks a lot. So one uh, interesting question from from what I hear, but if you could put up a billboard in the most trafficked area in Houston and you could write anything you want on that billboard, uh, what would you have it say? Just anything and like anything that has nothing tennis related or anything? Anything. Yeah. Anything you want. Um, It's not easy. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it sounds pretty cliche, but I would say uh, make a difference today. Awesome. Awesome, beautiful message there. Uh, and then, uh, Michael, uh, I know you've given, given us so many uh, fantastic tips today, which uh, we all really appreciate, but uh, I was wondering if you could tell us uh, one key tip that you can give us to help our audience improve their tennis games. Definitely. Um, most important part of tennis, I'm sure you guys have all heard that from your coaches, is footwork. So make sure you follow the three parameters, mm-hmm. the most important part, which is see the ball first, then the shoulder turn, then the feet. So a lot of times people move to the ball and then they try to turn and hit. Mm. So it's the most important part is seeing the ball, then the hands and the shoulder move, and then the feet move. But if your footwork, if you work on your footwork and your spacing is good, it's much easier to hit the ball. So it's not always about just technique. Mm, that's great advice, Michael. And, and by spacing, you just mean like having enough space in between your body and, and the contact point? Yes, between you and the ball. Yeah, it's, 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 it's very general, but it is. if your spacing is not good, what happens is your technique is compromised. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Gotcha, Michael. And, and yeah, just on that, I mean, what, what are the big, what's the biggest mistake that you see in, in people's footwork? Because I know you also mentioned you coach amateurs and things like that. So what's like their biggest movement mistake, you think? I think a lot of times people have the misnomer that they're supposed to take little shuffle steps 
steps before they hit the ball. And so, mm. and that's kind of a little more old school. Mm. So now it's much more efficient to take bigger steps, but gauging the space of the ball. So, and that's obviously through practice and repetition and, and correct muscle memory. Um, because by taking those little stutter, uh, stutter steps, you're not able to weight transfer and you're not being as efficient as you could be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Love that, Michael. Well, Michael, uh, I just want to thank you, uh, for your time. Uh, I mean, I highly encourage everybody to check out michaelrusselltennis.com. And, uh, of course, if you're in the Houston area, uh, I mean, try to check out, uh, Michael's, uh, programs. I know, I know you probably have like a limited number of students in there. There's probably a lot of demand, uh, you know, w- with all your experience and success, but, um, yeah, Michael, thanks so much for, uh, you know, great career and all that you're doing for uh, us tennis players now and helping us uh, improve. And uh, it really was a pleasure speaking with you. And thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I'm in Houston. I'm at the Houston Racquet Club. It's a beautiful club. We have clay and hard court. So uh, we're right in the heart of the city. So it doesn't get much better than that. And, you know, it's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed speaking with you and uh, look forward to it again in the future. Thanks a lot, Michael. All the best to you and hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you, Mary Beth. All right. I really hope you enjoyed my interview with Michael. Uh, Michael, huge shout out to you uh, for coming on to the show. I really appreciate it. And it was fantastic to speak with you about your amazing experiences uh, in your career and also the great advice that you gave us. Uh, really grateful for that. Uh, and I also would be really grateful if you would leave a review for the Tennis Files podcast. And you can do that easily by uh, just clicking the review button and uh, leaving a review for the show. Uh, it would help in two respects, uh, at least. Uh, one, by giving me feedback on the show and letting me know what you like about it and what you might not like about it as well. And then also it would help give more visibility to the show. Uh, I guess unless you gave it all zero stars or something, but uh, hopefully that won't happen. (laughs) Um, But anyways, uh, I really do appreciate you listening to the show and look forward to many more fantastic interviews uh, with the world's experts and and top pros and uh, coaches in the sport. I also want to leave you with a quote, as I often do at the end of the show, and today's quote is by John C. Maxwell, and John said, People may hear your words, but they feel your attitude. A very true statement. Uh, you know, you no matter what you say in the end, it's really what people actually sense what you're about. And also, you know, on top of that, you know, what your actions actually are. Um, so uh, with that, I really appreciate it once again. And uh, oh, also, if I haven't mentioned yet, all the links to... Uh, that were mentioned on the show today will be on the show notes page at tennisfiles.com slash 121. Uh, And if you want to get uh, David Goggins' book, Can't Hurt Me, uh, just to be forewarned, there's uh, a few expletives, but uh, the message is unbelievable and life-changing. You can get that book at tennisfiles.com slash Goggins. That's G-O-G-G-I-N-S. All right, well, with that, thank you for listening to the podcast, and we will see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. This is Mirban signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files Podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.